DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. You can't stop me, nothing's gonna stand in my way. I'm gonna fly higher I'm gonna fly higher Welcome to the Donald Thompson Podcast. I'm Donald Thompson, and this is a podcast where dream chasers can hear wisdom and insights from entrepreneurs and leaders who forge their own path to success. This is episode two of season three, and today we welcome a couple, Hassan and Melita Pinto, that I've wanted to have on the show for quite some time because they're absolute rock stars as parents and as professionals. And I wanted to know how they do it all. When I say rock stars, I'm not exaggerating. Their kids have full rise to play college soccer at elite universities. One went to Elon and then transferred to Duke. One is at UNC playing for the legendary Anson Dorrance. And one is at Princeton, successful on the field and academically. Super impressive. And on the show today, you'll hear about how the relationship formed, pain tolerance and career building, having kids and getting them into sports, coaching elite athletes, and parenting tips that we all can learn from. As we wrap up the section and the conversation that we have with them today, we'll hear about what the late Kobe Bryant taught Hassan when he worked for the LA Lakers. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, how are you? Hey, thank you for having us. Uh, you're very welcome. One of the things that I've been really, in a genuine way, excited to talk to you guys together, right? I've talked to you guys individually and we've seen each other over the years, but as a, as a couple, and both of you guys are accomplished business people, and I want you guys to share just a little bit about that background, but we really want to dig in today about how you make the magic work. So what I'm going to tell my audience, I'm going to give you a little uh, snippet on the magic, because both of these guys are very accomplished, but also very humble. And uh, Melita works in global marketing for Lenovo, extremely successful MBA, rock star as a career professional. Hassan is a serial entrepreneur, uh, he serves as the senior vice president for Creative Allies, and he'll tell you among the many different things, sold businesses, grown companies, has a beer brand that he's working on. And they have three amazing kids, all scholarship athletes. And one of the things we wanna talk about is certainly their business successes, but how they've blended that all together into a great family life and a great example uh, for a lot of us. So Hassan, why don't you take the ball first and then pass it to, to Melita. But we want to give it a little background on how you guys met. Great story. <laughs> and, and then we'll dig into some of the family stuff and weave in some other things along the way. So the way we met was a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours on your softball team, told me she had a girl that was perfect for me. And I said, you know, I don't know. I don't need any help in that category. I can, you know, I can do it. I, I, I'm okay. You don't have to set me up. I met this wonderful young lady at Players in Chapel Hill. It was like the renowned hookup spot in it, Chapel Hill. It was an athlete bar in Chapel Hill. It is legendary. She said hello to me. One of my friends was like, hey, there's this girl, Melita. She's, she's giving me vibes. I said, uh, go get her. I said, see what happens. And, you know, I was and I was actually testing her to see if, you know, if this was for me or that was for him. And so it, it ended up for me. Right. Yes. The great story from that night is 
we had a good time. We danced and hung out or whatever. And Hassan was going to take me home back then, pre-cell phones. I told my girlfriends, first of all, I had told them earlier in the night. I was like, I think this is the one. Not quite sure why, why I jumped to that immediately. But I definitely did tell them that. And then I told them that if I wasn't home in 15 minutes to come to room 505. That's true story. 505. True story. So if you go back and look at our wedding video, all of my girlfriends talk about room 505. But I was back in my dorm room in Morrison dorm in 15 minutes. Hassan was a perfect gentleman and he dropped me off. And then we and then we started hanging out. And we started hanging out. I yeah. Guess. We had fun. It was college. We had a really good time. We just found out that we had a lot in common. We were both athletes, you know, we came from out of state and we just found out that we had a lot of commonalities and liked to have fun and had a pretty diverse group of friends. And, and we've continued that to this day. For me, I always wanted to do stuff that was just kind of out of the ordinary. And so I was always looking for the young lady I thought I could build something special with. And she was that person. So net net, if we tell the two story, I was the guy with like the junkie car old model car. She was the girl with the nice new car and she'd jump in my car and she didn't care. Kind of like a Michelle Barack Obama type thing. And, uh, <laughs> but I had like super, super big dreams. And part of the reason why she went to Duke Business School is because her grades went up when she started dating me because I told her <laughs> she had to study. Right? <laughs> and I had really big dreams. And I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm not settling for what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to settle for what I want to do. And she really, she'd always encourage me. She said, Hey, you can do this. You can do that. And that's really for me, why I think we worked because I felt like this was somebody I could build something special with. That's awesome. When you think about transitioning from college and then going into the workforce and then starting to chase some of those dreams, tell me about some of the ups and downs there along the way that, that built your story, those lessons that, that were learned. Should I start or you start? Oh, I'll start that Go one. Start. So you Hassan's start. a year older than me and he graduated and his brother was moving out to Los Angeles to go back to grad school at USC. And Hassan had big dreams. That's part of the reason, one of the reasons I was attracted to him is he, he always talked about doing big, amazing things. So at this time, he's like, I'm going to LA. I'm going to, I'm going to meet Jerry West and I'm going to work for the Lakers. And he was <laughs> like, what I'm going to do, let's go after it. So again, pre-internet, we spent some time writing some letters to Mitch Kupchak, who at that time was the general manager of the Los Angeles Lakers. Mitch is also an alumni of UNC Chapel Hill, as well as Brentwood High School, which is where Hassan is from. We started that letter writing campaign and then I'll let Hassan tell the rest of the story about getting out. So she would say, hey, Haas, on this day of the month, no internet access, she'd say, Haas, we write her a letter. I was like, yeah, we're going to write her a letter. So every day of the month for 12 months, we wrote Mitch Kupchak. And he never wrote us back. <laughs> so when I said, hey, I'm going to work for the Lakers, the final, I guess in the 12th month of me leaving for Los Angeles, I said, hey, Mitch, basically, thank you for not returning my letter, but I'm coming out to Los Angeles. I'll be there next, like two weeks. It was two weeks, yeah. So took a while. my brother and I took a two-week road trip. We went to every college town in the nation that we wanted to go along to. I-40. Along <laughs> I-40. And we partied across the country for two weeks. We went to Vegas and went to Tyson Holyfield, too, in Vegas, and then came into Los Angeles. And the next day, I think the day after I came, my brother said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get my job. He said, how are you going to get this job, Haas? I said, well, he's got to walk in some door. I said, so I'm going to walk in that door. I'm going to figure out where it is. And I'm going to say, I'm here. I'm going to say, give him a little packet. I had it prepared. She prepared it for me. And I said, I'm going to tell him I'm living in Los Angeles. So it's time for me to get my job. So there's a, when you walk into the Lakers front office, which was in the forum, at the forum, like in the forum club entrance, there's a secretary outside of the secretary. So I had asked the secretary, Gerilyn, does Mitch Kupchak and Jerry West walk by this and enter that door? And she said, yeah, every day. 
And I said, okay, can you do me one favor? Can you just give him this packet and say he came in here and this is his packet and he will be back tomorrow at 10 a.m.? So, and I was dressed for my meeting that day. So I went back to my apartment with my brother and he said, what I said, well, my meeting's tomorrow. He said, well, how do you know that? I said, I don't know it. I'm just getting dressed for my meeting and I'm going there tomorrow. So the following day, I'm dressed up. Melita calls me. She wakes me up because you were waking me up every morning. At that point, I was living in D.C. working for the State Department. And so (laughs) she woke me up. She said, you ready for your meeting? I said, I'm ready for my meeting. And I put on my suit and I went to Geraldine and I said, can you call Mitch and say I'm here for my 10 a.m.? So Tania, his assistant, basically said she was worried that she didn't have Mitch and Jerry's 10 a.m. on her appointment book. And so what happened was she went back to them and said, do you have Hassan here for your 10 a.m.? And they were like, Hassan who? And he was like, Hassan Pinto, he's out in the lobby. Do you have a 10 a.m. with him? And so basically I wasn't on the 10 a.m., but they were like, we'll meet with you in 30 minutes. And so that's how I got in the door. So it was persistence, perseverance, and some good, good old, I would say, luck. I would say luck and blessings. <laughs> Yeah, a little blessings along the way. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I think for entrepreneurs, for people chasing a dream, you have to be a little out there to believe enough for it to work. Because if you don't believe enough, you're going to only do a little bit when you've got to be fully committed, win, lose, or drop. And I'm getting chills a little bit about that story only because, like, that's just the story of my life also. There's no way. I just like, all right, I'm going to start a marketing company. Well, I'm, you don't know marketing. It's like, yeah, but I'll figure it out. It'll, it'll be big. You know, people will want to do this. So it'll, it'll be big, right? And, and you just start and you ask questions and you learn and you read and you get no's, you get fired, you get hired, but you keep pushing. And so many people think it's a microwave outcome for success. And really, it's that perseverance. So 12 months of letters. And then Melita, I appreciate your humility, but like this podcast is not the moment. You just dropped and oh yeah, I was in DC working for the State Department, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so that, what, that was supposed to be her real life. Yeah. That we, was supposed to be her real life. After I graduated, I moved home for a year, lived at home and ended up being a, a defense contractor working at, at the State Department in DC. And back then that was actually the first time the government had ever run out of money. So this was back in 95, 96 timeframe. So the government was furloughed and it was shut down around the Thanksgiving timeframe. But I was a contractor. My contract had been paid. And at that point, there still wasn't widespread internet. So it wasn't like I could go, <laughs> go to the office and just surf the internet for hours at a time because there wasn't any work to be done. Gotcha. And the work that I did, that I was responsible for, I could pretty easily complete that in under a week. So you're talking, okay, I've done my work for the month and now I'm chilling. Well, as a wide-eyed 22-year-old, I was like, I don't want my life to be this. I don't, I don't want this experience. I, I can give so much more. So at that time, Hassan's been joking about how I was his wake-up call in Los she, Angeles. She'd wake me up. She's three <laughs> hours early. It's 10 o'clock, 7 o'clock. She'd wake me up. Before. So 10 a.m. every morning, I would call him up. And we chit chat because I, I was at work. I, I didn't have any work to do. And we would just talk about our dreams and what we wanted to do. And I, at that time, I was like, oh, I, I think I should have really done journalism while I was in school. I should have gone down the RTVMP major at UNC, but I chose to do industrial relations and business. And so Hassan was chasing his dreams and he kept encouraging me to chase mine. So I worked at the State Department for about 11 months before I said, you know what, I can do more. And I quit my job and my parents blessed the move. So I moved across country to live with Hassan and chase my dreams. And he has been fortunate because he got brought on as an intern with the Lakers. And so he was starting to meet people in Los Angeles and he introduced me to Todd Fritz at ESPN. So I went in to interview and interviewed with Deb Vogel and, and Todd and Jason Rem. And, and those, are, those are my people. The, like, even to this day, those are my people. They gave me my start in television and 
started as an intern working on Up Close with Roy Firestone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Roy is a gem. He is just as genuine in person as he appears to be in Jerry Maguire. (laughs) So that was really my start in television. And they gave me special assignments that actually led to future growth in television. So I got a special assignment one day and I worked with Mark Shapiro, who now leads Endeavor Entertainment. Well, um, and make sure that they know what Endeavor is. Yeah. I- IMG what, Worldwide. Well, yeah. Dem- William Morris, IMG. Um, and he's actually what Ari president. Gold from like Entourage. He's that guy, <laughs> right? No, he's that guy. He's the real life. So at the time, you know, this has been 20 years ago, but Mark was an up and comer with ESPN. He was producing the Take Two show with Jim Rome and Mark had broken his, his thumb. And so I was his assistant for the day and we hit it off. He's, he's a great guy, great leader. And, you know, casually that day, that one day he was like, Hey, if you want to move back to the East coast, I have a job for you. Like super casual. I had been in LA for a short amount of time at that point and actually was working part-time on the Up Close show and found out I was pregnant. So was pregnant with Little Haas at the time and really still building my career. And so I really didn't think anything of it, but the folks that I worked with on Up Close were super supportive. Jason Rim and Steve Michaels and Chris Myers, who's now on Fox. Those guys really gave me the support I needed to continue my career. And when Hassan decided, gosh, it was two years later that he, that he wanted to go back to grad school and we wanted to move back to the East coast. My path was already, it was already tracked at that point. So a couple of phone calls later and Hassan's pursuing his master's degree and I, I got brought on at ESPN Sports Century. Yeah. So it's really been for us is like, dream your biggest dream. And I brought her out to Los Angeles. I brought out a person who was my wife. And, you know, I I knew that this was the person that I was going to be with forever. But at the same time, I selected her to be my girlfriend years back because I knew I could build something with her and I could dream build. And I knew she would, especially when she would ride in my car, I was like, wow, this girl, this girl would. (laughs) This, this young lady is a ride or die. I was like, I said, look, we can dream the biggest dream. And I, I really wasn't interested in the young ladies who were really materialistic that you had to have this, you had to have that, because I saw materialism as being restrictive to your dreams, right? And I felt like if you really wanted to live the biggest dreams, you had to be, you know, entrepreneurs are people who are dreaming what they want their life to be or what they want their business to be, but it's not that at the moment. And so I needed someone to, to have delayed gratification and get the gratification from the journey. And I think that's the number one reason that Melita is irreplaceable is because this is the person that I found who I could create a great dream with. Piggyback on that concept, delayed gratification is something we both understand and we both believe in. We've always had a saying that, you know, anything worthwhile, it's going to be hard and it's, and it's going to take a while. There are no overnight successes. That's a fallacy that Hollywood sends to people, even the ones that come out of nowhere. There was a lot of hard work that went to getting that person ready for that moment. It's not like you just you get discovered on the street and, oh yeah, somebody's willing to give you tens of millions of dollars. That does no, not happen. It doesn't happen. <laughs> I just, I totally respect it. I mean, there's no overnight successes. Being an entrepreneur, being successful in corporate America, being successful at a high level of anything is a lot of hard work. And one of the things I tell people is they'll ask, hey, hey Don, what do I need to do? What are my characteristics need to be to be where you are, be further where you are, to be a billionaire? I said, I don't know what your goals are, but you have to have pain tolerance. I know that. I know that you're going to have some people tell you no in deals that you're counting on. I know that you're going to be tired and you're not going to want to go to that next meeting, but you don't have any choice and you need to be on point the moment you hit the door. And I know that that pain tolerance is something that is learnable. That's an effort thing. That's an attitude thing, right? There are certain aptitudes that people have that they should pick their lane, things where they can be unique and special. 
And then there's some things where you just have to have the grit. You just have to be willing to take that, that extra mile and then go two more. And so I appreciate those. Let's pivot to the kids a little bit because I literally right. could talk to you guys for hours and listen, right? Like, <laughs> no, no joke. Talk to me about each of the kids and talk to me about starting them in sports and, and how you help them evolve. Obviously, they put in hard work because they wouldn't have made if they didn't do it. But they had great guidance and great teachers. Talk to me about some of those. Let me start this. Okay. <laughs> so there was two things I wasn't going to do. I wasn't going to marry a girl that wasn't athletic, that didn't like sports, and wasn't smart. Okay. So my criteria was she had to like sports, she had to be pretty, and she had to be smart. And, and the reason why I wanted a smart young lady was because I felt like if something ever happened to me, I never wanted to worry about my kids. Mm. Okay. So I always said to myself, you know, my brother would say to me, why do you like her so much? I said, well, it doesn't matter. My kids are set. I was like, they're going to be smart. <laughs> they're going to be athletic. They're going to be organized. And I, I already knew that the mother was the, the key to all that. And so that's the reason. So we started dreaming these dreams of our kids, naming our kids, I guess when we were like- 1993. Yeah, like in 1993. 18, 19 years old. And- We named them. We named all them, of them. All of them. You know, we kind of stuck to this plan that we were going to have really smart, athletic kids. I want to say something that threads to everything you guys are talking about that maybe most people won't get, but the handful of people that do, you guys speak things into existence. There is a powerful set of circumstances when you allow the words that you speak to be ordered by the actions that you take and you don't let other people's negative view of you, negative words about you enter your space. And that's something that just not even knowing you as deeply as I would like to, that's in your everyday walk. And most people allow the way they talk to be kind of of average and success is about the work you do, how you program your mind, and who you listen to as much as anything else. And your guys are given a master class in that, just in the way that you guys talk and program what you want. And that's really, like, that's really good. So Malia, I'll turn it over to you. But that, <laughs> that like that's good stuff, man. Like I'm, I'm having this. Is good no, stuff. we we do we we have a lot of things that we've talked about twenty seven years ago. Yes. <laughs> Have definitely come to fruition. A lot, but not uh, everything. So that's not, why we got, not everything. We got. That's why we got to keep working. Right? Yeah, we we ha we have a lot of work to do. The thing that we had always talked about is the type of experience we wanted our kids to have. Hassan traveled a lot. I'm a military brat, so I was used to walking in diverse spaces and being quite comfortable no matter where I went. But one thing that was also very important to us is that we wanted to know who our kids went to school with. So. Back in 2001, we were in New York, actually living in Connecticut at the time. 2001, is when we were both working for Major League Baseball, Baseball. by then, and 9-11 happened. And that was a pretty traumatic experience for, for most Americans, but particularly for us, given that we worked in Manhattan. And at that time, my dad was working at the Pentagon in D.C., and, you know, the outcome from that was we really did a, a self-reflection about, is this the life we want to live? We're grinding my commute to Chelsea Market from Fairfield, Connecticut. It was about two hours and 15 minutes each way. So do the math. I'm, I'm spending a good chunk of my day commuting, which meant that we weren't spending time with our kids. And at that time, Hassan was, had just turned four. And so we knew the next year he would be going into kindergarten. And, and we kind of looked at each other and we were like, is this, is this what we're going to do? We're, our, our we're going to get a nanny and we'll see our kids from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. every night. Is that, is that what we want? That's what we were doing. <laughs> that's what we were doing, but they were young. So that's that's what we were doing. <laughs> but we also knew that the best way to change something is to take action, right? So yes, it's really, it, it, it's yeah. really easy, right? So if you really want to live in Paris, you moved, moved to, to Paris. Paris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you figure it out? But to your point earlier, John, <laughs> is your willingness to sustain pain. Like, what is your pain tolerance? And and we, honestly, we looked at each other. We're like, this ain't it. So we, we move. <laughs> and, and we said, 
we always talked about raising the kids in North Carolina. Let's do that. That's better than the life that we're living today. So we went to our employers and we said, <laughs> they said, where are you going? We said, we're moving. And they said, well, what league is down there? What, what, <laughs> what's down there? And we said, a great life. And we're going to buy a house. We're going to live near the university. We're going to focus on our kids. And we're going to do whatever we have to do to survive in the interim until we get the things that we want. And nobody really understood it, right? But we understood it because when I said, hey, I'm going to LA, the only way for me to get this job is to go to LA, right? Because the job is in LA, right? So I have to get there to, to be there, right? The only way for her to get the sports century opportunity is for us to go to New York, right? And the only way for us to live in North Carolina and just check off one of our bucket lists was to move to North Carolina. So I always tell people, well, if you want to move to Paris, you want to move to Dubai, you want to move to the Cayman Islands, move there, right? Just get on a plane, go and stay, right? And, and then figure it out from there. So we took another dynamic move. I think it was the best move of our life. And it's worked out well. It's worked out very well. And <laughs> We bought a great house. We raised our kids here and we kind of knew it when we were looking at some new houses and my kids were like, don't move. Wait till we're like graduated. We're really happy with our friends here. So that was exciting for us. And I think the, you know, the, the narrative here with us is like, if you don't take action, whether that's business, whether that's family, whether that's anything, you can have a dream, but it's a dream, but it becomes real when you start taking action. And it doesn't mean that action means that everything's going to work out. It just means that you're on the journey to get what you want. So I always tell people, you can have anything you want. I have the woman I want, but if I didn't, I can have her. I, I might have to wait till she gets divorced. <laughs> I might have to, I, I might have to wait and talk to a nice dog for 40 years. And then at some point it's going to open up and it's going to be mine, right? She's going to come to her senses, right? So I can have any deal I want. I just have to be patient and I have to persevere and I have to stay. I can have any account I want. I can have any business I want. I can have anything in this world I want. The only prerequisite I, I have to get it out of this, I may not get it when I want it, but if I... <laughs> keep working towards it, right. um, I'll eventually get it. Yeah. So to, to circle us back to the kids, uh, so that was a quality of life choice that we made. And probably a week and a half after we got here, we had Little Haas enrolled in rainbow soccer in Chapel Hill. And, and that was going to be our life. We always talked about going to soccer practices with our kids, and we didn't see a path to it in the New York in the tri-state area. So we made it happen. So, you know, there was no pressure on him. It was really, let's get him in an activity. Let's see how he enjoys it. And he loved it. And, and we kept doing it. And so we always gave them an option of what sports they wanted to play. So they've all played tennis at one point or another. They've all done swimming. They all played basketball. They all played t-ball and softball. And then I guess it was what, Haas was eight when you decided? Yeah. So Haas was like, he was eight years old and he says, dad, I want to play in the ACC. Can I do it? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, what do I got to do? I said, well, we got to do everything different. You're going to have to listen to me. I said, I'm going to have to coach you. I'm going to have to like really push you. I said, but if that's your dream, we can get there, but you're going to have to listen because I knew he was a little bit behind. Behind because we were sensitive, like we both played sports. So we were sensitive to forcing our kids to go into sports. We took a little bit of a laissez-faire attitude with- We, with, we read the books, Don. We, we did, we listened to other people. We listened to other people. Did. So I read the books, <laughs> what to expect when you're expected. Don't let your kid pay the sport that you know, right? Don't let your, <laughs> don't coach your kid, right? <laughs> And so when he, when he told me he wanted to play soccer, I chucked the book, I burned it. I said, okay, we're going to do it my way. <laughs> and um, I said, so I'm coaching. And then when I started to coach him, I said, look, I'm going to coach this kid and get him to the skill level that I want to give him to him. Then I'll give him to other people. 
Then my daughter taps me on the shoulder and she says, hey, you coached him. You're going to coach me too. And I said, I, I've never, I have, I have three other brothers. I don't know this. So I hired my wife and the women. I said, look, if I'm too rough on the girls, let me know because I, I, I don't have any sisters. So I ended up coaching her for a bunch of years. And then my youngest was like, well, you coach both of them. You got to coach me, right? So I would coach them until they just got sick of me coaching them. And the net result was, you know, my son had a dream. He said, I want to play in the ACC. I said, we got work to do. My daughter had a poster that she got from a Carolina soccer game. She says, dad, can I be an Anson girl? I said, hundred percent, but you got but you not only have to dream it, but we got to have a plan on how you're going to get there. Mm. And my youngest was like, you know, I'm going to be a pro. And he said, can I be a pro? I said, yeah, absolutely. Easy, right? Easy stuff. But we got to have a plan and you got to get on the plan and we got to all decide what that plan is. And then there might be a time where we got to tear up the plan and create a new plan. That's right. right. Sometimes you got to redirect. We got to pivot, right? So (laughs) you preach it now. That's just what it is. (laughs) Sometimes that plan will work, right? It's not a straight line. It's not a straight line. It's up and down. So that's how our kids got into sports. I actually knew they were going to get into sports, but my first plan was, I was listening to what to expect when you expect. And then when they got kids, it was like one to two, don't coach your kid. Two to five, don't coach your kid. I think that. No, I, I know I'm in the right. Like, <laughs> look, I totally agree. Right? Because a lot of books and a lot of things from people are giving people permission to be average and that's okay. Yes. Right? Like that's what they're doing. And they're programming that, hey, listen, if you're just a little bit above average, that's okay. Right? Well, that's okay if that's the maximum potential you have. I agree with that. But if you can be more and you didn't try and you didn't give the effort, my nightmare is not knowing. Like people say, Don, why are you into this? Why are you into this? My nightmare is not taking every advantage my parents gave me coming out of the 60s, coming from a little town in Bogalusa, Louisiana, and not doing everything I could with those opportunities. That would be my nightmare. I don't know if I'm going to be a billionaire or be worth a hundred million dollars, but I'm going to try. Try. And and then at the end of it, right. If I can write a check to send 50 kids to school, it'll be worth it. Right. Right? It's, it's the expansiveness of your dream, but those books are teaching our kids how to be average. Yeah. So Hassan and I have a running joke that we are the dodgeball parents, like, cause (laughs) yes, I'm humble, but I'm also fairly competitive. So we joke about being dodgeball parents because there was a movement, I guess, in the 90s and early 2000s that you would take dodgeball out of PE in school because, you know, kids were getting bullied or whatever the reasoning was. But I feel like dodgeball is a reflection of, is actually a reflection of life. Like you got to adapt. So if somebody like I played with the boys when I was in third and fourth grade, like that was my jam. So I, I know some dodgeball and I got great hand-eye coordination. So, great <laughs> so, <laughs> so when as a society, we started saying, Oh no, 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 we can't do that. I get it because there, there's a fine line. Obviously you should not be picking on other kids, sure. but at the same time, if you're not athletic, then you have to revert to your brain. What, like, who do you stand next to? You stand next to the kid who actually can catch it because he's not going to drop the ball and get knocked out. Like, you, you, you play the game differently. It's not a physical game. It, it morphs into a, a, a mental game. And so when you think about pursuing goals, there's always a physical aspect to what you want to accomplish, and then there's a mental aspect to it. And you got to train for both. So Net-net, the takeaway is I'm a big proponent of dodgeball. In yeah, that's awesome. I, I don't like participation trophies. They're not good. Hey, but. <laughs> yeah, and I think that segues into the mental aspects. We always told our kids that they need to be equally as good in the classroom as they are on the field. Yeah. You know, and it's funny. Malik, yesterday we were watching the spelling bee. He goes, man, I could have won that. He yeah. said, <laughs> the Princeton yeah. kid. He said, yeah. I could have went to scripts. I could. I think I could have won that. And he won his league. He won his division. He finished what fourth in in his whole school as like a fourth grader. So, and one like, year he won his whole school. Yeah. Then he went to like counties, and then he went to like the North Carolina championship. 
And he's like, man, if I would have focused, man, I could have, I, I, I could have won that. And so that same kid where, you know, we're advising him with college, you know, he's getting recruited by 15 schools. He's going to schools that he knows good and well, he's not going to, but he enjoyed like, he liked being courted. He liked being yeah. courted. Right. <laughs> and he and he got good at it. He said, "How do you see me in your program? How do you?" See? And he wanted to hear what they thought of him. But this same kid, we said, "Look, you can play in the ACC. You can play at Duke." I said, "But you've got the grades to do something that I didn't do. You didn't do." And I did not, we, I did not apply to Princeton. We didn't apply to Princeton. So we said, "Look." The third one, what people don't know is the third one who told you he wanted to be a pro, he had multiple offers from MLS clubs to not go to college and go right out and, and, and start his pro yeah. career. And a lot of folks are focused on our daughter, Brianna, but the, the youngest one was also asked not to go to college, put it off for a year, signed a youth to pro to contract. But we said, no, no. I said, look, if you want to go with these clubs, you can see them in the summer if you're as good as you think you are, you are, you're going to score a ton of goals in the Ivy League. And what we're going to set you up is, so when you make that league and you are a pro, you're going to, when you retire, you're going to be the general manager of that club. And so we're already having those conversations. Look, you go here, you can be the general manager or the commissioner of the league and run all of that. Likewise with Brianna, we tried to get her to approach Harvard because she had the grades for it. And we know she does because right now she's all ACC, all America in soccer, but she's all ACC in the classroom as well. Academic all ACC. But she she wouldn't do it. But we were like, her her dream was to go to Carolina and play for Anson. Yeah, I was like, always wanted that. She's always talked about traveling the world to play soccer. But her college dream since the time she was four was to go to Carolina and play for Anson. So she is literally walking in the dream that she spoke. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like from four years old to now, like what was it about the Carolina program? What was it about what Anson has created that where she could play anywhere, right? That that aligned with what she wanted academically, athletically, and, and all those things. Well, the legacy of, of winning. Brianna is a super competitor. She hates losing. Hates it. She hates being second in anything and has since the time she was probably two when she would race her brother to tie her shoes. Like they'd race from the car to the door. Who could be first? Who would be first in putting their seatbelt on? Like everything for Brianna has been a competition basically since she could form a sentence. Like that's who she is. And for her, the competitive cauldron was something that really resonated with her. She likes so explain the competitive so, cauldron. Yeah, so, so the competitive the competitive cauldron at UNC basically as as the team trains in everything they do, they measure it. And everything. Then, like their times on their sprints, how many pull-ups they get, how many passes they complete. Like they measure how everything. well they're doing in the classroom. They're competing. The girls yes. are competing at every in aspect every of life. And they're being measured. So the point of that is Brianna can look and they post the measurements too. Mm-hmm. So you so you're acutely aware of where, you, where you where you rank on the team. And depending on your performance, that can dictate your playing time or your ability to start. So for her, it's very clear. You want to start on this team, you need to be in the top three on these metrics. So she's very rewards driven so for her that was a perfect fit for a lot of other kids it's not it's it's a little bit it's it's rough because it's it's there in black and white it's very clear you did not do like your 22nd on the team and in your beat test and that and that works and that works for her and yeah. yeah so she achieved her dream my older son he achieved his dream too and he's achieving his dream he's at business school at fuqua well i guess it's a top five business school in the country and uh, at Duke. You know, I think initially we thought he was going to go to Georgetown as undergrad, but he said, I'm from the South. I grew up raising Durham, North Carolina. He said, they don't have lights and I want to play at night. So he said, I'm going to Elon. And he said, I'll go to like Duke and Chapel Hill for grad school. 
And at the time, he had a, they had an amazing coach who's uh, one of the top coaches in the country in the pros over at Elon. He felt like Elon was a great school. And it was a great experience for him, great relationships. And then I said to him, you know, I think, I think you can start over at Duke and you can go into the ACC. I said, look, why don't you finish up school a little bit faster and let's take that last year and apply to business school and then let's play it out over at Duke. And I think he's, he's achieved his dream. I mean, his dream was to play in the ACC. He got it. He went a different direction with it. But not only did he play, he started. And he started every single game and played every single minute. And I think he played more minutes than anybody on that team this last year. And so now he's, we, we made a deal with him. We said, look, if you go to business school, we're going to give you three years of your life, four years maybe, <laughs> To, we'll, see. we'll see. Okay. We'll give him some time. Search out your pro dream. And then, you know, you know, at 27, we're going to knock on the door and we're going <laughs> to, we're going to say, well, and evaluate how well this is going. And then and if it's not going as well as he wants it, then we're going to say, Hey, revert back to that, that Duke degree and start your life. Yeah. And, Cause he's just, he's just 22. He'll be 23 this summer. So he'll have two degrees one from Elon and his master's from Duke. So he really will have the world at his fingertips. So, you know, obviously our whole story has been about chasing your dream. And so for him, you know, playing at the next level and seeing how far he can push it is absolutely a dream. And we're like, go do it. You can't do it at 35, you better do it right now. That's exactly right. <laughs> let, me, let me ask this as we wind our, our time over the next few minutes. What advice would you give for parents along the way that have athletic kids in terms of getting that real world evaluation, right? Like my, I'm the son of a coach and football was my lane. And, you know, my dream was on scholarship signing day because once I got there, I was like, I'm not quite big enough or fast enough. I'm going to be a special team all American guy. This is going to be like, there's, there's some things I can't fix. Right. Right. But I remember getting real guidance and coaching with my dad about where I was right? Not just the pep rally, but hey, listen, you got to do this, you got to do this, or this is kind of the, the ceiling. How do parents get that true north for where their kids are really at? When there's people that are always wanting to sell them stuff, AAU stuff, go to this camp, buy this clinic. How do they get through that to really understand if sports are a way to stay in shape, way to get a scholarship, can go all the way? How do they measure that when, when kids are coming up? You want to take that one? Well, you start it. <laughs> well, the joke in the house is that my kids call me ruthless. They're like, you're so mean. Like, you just tell it like it is. And I'm like, well, I didn't play soccer growing up. But what I do know is sports. There are some universal truths about sports. And I can also see effort because I know my kid and I know when they're giving 100% and I know when they're dogging it. So whenever they would play... I was pretty honest with their, like, you gave 100% today. Uh, today, you didn't have it. And I'll, I'll share this story because my my youngest son shared it with me. And he was like, you were so mean and it like hurt my feelings. And I was like, well, I wasn't trying to hurt your feelings. I really wanted you to be honest with yourself. As a parent of an athlete, I can't want their success more than they do. Mm-hmm. So he had a bad game and, you know, all the books say, Oh, you know, wait 24 hours, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, "Ah, let's, let's just be honest guys. Like I didn't see the effort that I thought you should be giving. I know the talent level that you possess and I didn't see it today. So why don't you take some time and, and debate, like, where do I want to take this? I was like, because it's a huge time investment for the family. It's, it's a commitment for, for all of us. And if you're not serious about it, we can walk away. It's, it's okay. It's but, okay. <laughs> but I, but I, think, I think the other thing that you can do is craft a role for your kid, yeah. right? Yeah, that's a huge part. So if I take it to football, my kids are not going to be quarterback. I mean, Haas is like almost 6'2", but maybe him, right? But uh, if he's you're not – skinny. Yeah, he's kind of skinny, but <laughs> – if you're not six foot four, six foot five, you're not probably not going to play quarterback in the NFL. And if that's your dream, right? So I'm always looking at my kids and I'm always 
looking at the reality and I'm saying, okay, well, what role can they play in the NFL, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's also about like looking at what your strengths and weaknesses and knowing who you are. So for example, we were in training today and I was telling Haas, I said, look, you can't be training against the people here. You got to be training against the people who aren't here. And so you've got to be working at the level that you think they're going to be working at, or you got to be surpassing. And I said, look, if you go into those tryouts and you try to be who you're not, I said, you're not going to make it. But if you go into that tryout and you try to be who you are and you play the role of where your strength is. And I said, mm -hmm. your strength is, I said, this kid never takes a playoff. This kid is locked into his job. And you became who you were supposed to be. No, that's good stuff. I mean, the thing that I'm hearing that's powerful for our audience, for anybody that knows you guys, is number one, don't settle for kind of what the books say, right? Find some people that believe in you enough, right? That can actually show you where you can be special and then help you get there. And that's such a powerful nugget of information. As we wind down, I want to switch gears. You spent some time in L.A., you're one of the few people that I know that that knew Kobe Bryant. What yeah. would you like to share, right? I mean, people know him as an iconic <sighs> basketball player. They know him as a business person. But what would you like to share with our audience about your relationship, his legacy, anything that you want to want to share? But I just want to give you some space. So Kobe Bryant was the youngest player we ever brought into the Lakers. And I had, you know, the fortune to watch his workout. I think we brought uh, Alabama's Dante Jones. We brought some other guy and they all were like one, two, three picks in the NBA. And Jerry West brings him in and Kobe's just torching these guys 1v1 as a 17 year old. And I'm not talking good college players. I'm talking one, two, three, four, and five, killing them. So Jerry's like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of blood. And I'm like, Vlad is an all-star center. Vlad Defox is a good center. And I said, you're going to get him from here? He said, yeah. So I walk over, and this is probably where I learned some of what I do. <laughs> and Kobe's dad is named, we used to call him Jelly Bean, right? So his, I walk over to Jelly Bean. I said, wow, your kid's good. He says, yeah, Haas, he's going to save the league. I said, save the league? I said, don't we have Michael Jordan? Like, what, what, what is he going to save? And Jellybean's like, no, no, Mike's old, Haas. He's out of here. Kobe's the next one. And I said, okay, he's good, but save the league? So it was just in my head. So then we actually draft Kobe. First days in the office, they're like, Haas, Kobe's in town. Pick him up from the airport. And I had a list of itinerary things that he had to do. He had to do a shoot at Venice Beach. We had to go to the radio show. And me and Kobe drove around LA in my Toyota Corolla. I had a Toyota Corolla, right? And thank <laughs> God in LA, you don't really need air conditioning. So it didn't have air conditioning. So it didn't have air conditioning, <laughs> right? So it's me, Kobe, and my German Shepherd sitting in the middle of us, right? <laughs> so I'm having a conversation with this guy. And I said, okay, Kobe, what are you trying to do? He says, and then he starts to get agitated, like, angry like he's cool with me the whole trip and he starts to get angry and I said well why are you getting angry I just want to know he says well what do you think I'm trying to do I said well are you trying to ease into the team figure out where you fit in and you know maybe start like a year or two from now and he said he said pull over the car so I pull over the car and he said look MFA I'm here to start right now. And like, he went from like this peaceful guy to a guy in rage, right? And I said, well, come on, Kobe. We got this guy named Eddie Jones. I said, Eddie's the two guard here. And he just, I don't know if you know this, but he just bought the owner's house in Playa del Rey. I said, do you want me to take you by there? He bought it like two months ago. And Kobe said, well, Eddie's just got to pack his bags. He's out of here. And I said, he's out of here. He said, he's out of here because that's my job. And he's not in the same class as me. <laughs> and what people don't understand is, and so what, what Toby taught me was to dream big. He had a dream 
to be the greatest basketball player. And he was battling legends from the minute he walked into the NBA. And his father was part of it. His father would say, yeah, Kobe's going to save the league. Kobe's going to be the best player in the NBA. And then I would go back to Nick Van Exel, the players, to Shaq. And I said, how good is this kid? They're like, yeah, he's... They would never say it to him, but they were like, damn, this guy's good. And so that's my... A recollection of Kobe is a guy that he dreamed the biggest dream, but he put the work in every single day. He was a monster in practice. And he was a guy like Del Harris wouldn't play him, but he was destroying everybody every single day in practice. And I think my takeaway was if he could do it, I could do it. If he could do it, my kid could do it. So when my kid would say, can you, can I be an Anson girl? I said, yes. But now she's saying, can I be the Ballon d'Or, which is the best player in the world? I say, yes. My other son said, can I go pro? I say, yes. My youngest kid says, can I be a pro? Can I be the commissioner of the league? I say 100% yes, because I've seen people do it. But I'll say as we wind down, because there's nothing left to say after that. So, I, I, hey, listen, my claim to fame is knowing to wind that thing down and just <laughs> and, and, and let it be easy, right? <laughs> Is, you know, you guys as a, as a couple and individuals, what a platform and what things you guys are doing that are inspiring people that you don't even really know and, and those that, that you're influencing and what you do every day. And in this kind of crazy world we live, we're all chasing people we can look up to. And when I see your posts about your kids and your family, it warms my heart because I want my kids to chase their dreams in their lane. And, yep. and it's all about given the foundation so they can do it. We can't do it for them. We can't exactly. believe more than they, they want to believe. Yeah. But we certainly can make sure that we help every step of the way. And you guys have done that for each other, for kids, and, uh, and now a lot of other people. So anyway, guys, thank you so much. You can't stop me. Nothing's going to stand in my way. Nothing. Nothing. I'm going to fly. That was Hassan and Melita Pinto, amazing parents, executives, and people. Such a powerful interview today on chasing your dreams, manifesting what you want. They knew what they wanted, they made it happen. And I hope everybody that was listening today wants to build that into your DNA for your own goals. I'm Donald Thompson, and you can find out more about these podcasts, ebooks I've written, diversity inclusion work that I'm involved in at donaldthompson.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. If you're looking for information on how full-service podcast production can amplify your voice and build your community, visit EarFluence.com. Next week on the Donald Thompson Podcast, we'll have Jen Hoverstadt, Director of Community Outreach for the K. Yao Cancer Fund. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson Podcast.